0: Well, hello from Hawaii. It's Michael Benner with this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, live from Maui, Hawaii. It's a little bit after 1 o'clock in the West, 4 p.m. Sunday afternoon on the East Coast of the United States. Nice to be with you. Thanks for checking us out again this week. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is here every Sunday afternoon live, and immediately following this class... This program goes into uh, perpetual replay and is available from that point forward. You can use our built-in gadget at theagelesswisdom.com to not only listen to past programs, but to forward them to your friends. I want to encourage you to do that. It doesn't cost a, a thing and um, is uh, good for everybody. These These programs, a lot of people that you know are looking for programs like these. And I want to remind you that these programs are free and also ad-free, as is the website, because we're all a public service of FocusedPassion.com, which is our sister site. There's TheAgelessWisdom.com and also focusedpassion.com where we have a premium audio program studio quality it's not live but it is podcast and available streaming to you on focusedpassion.com that is a premium audio program featuring my partner Steve and I and at the end of this program I'll tell you a little bit more about it if you like this program uh, maybe you've got 99 cents a week to support the whole effort at FocusedPassion.com That that program is exceptional and uh, builds upon this program it's um, in many ways more oriented toward personal development whereas this program the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is both personal and spiritual development we often get a little more esoteric or A little more arcane, if you will, with the mystery school. But the conversations that Steve and I do in the premium audio program series, Finding Yourself in Paradise, uh, that's a very different format. You don't usually get instruction in any topic through um, conversation. And Steve and I have worked together for 30 plus years as Many of you know we've done dozens and dozens of public seminars and private corporate work for big and small businesses, public seminars, and uh, radio work. Steve and I had a show at KRLA for a little over a year, uh, a few years back. and uh, So I'll talk at the end of this program a little more about that. And uh, if you'd like to support the whole effort, at $3.00 and $0.96 cents a month, we'd love to have you come on board and subscribe. So our topic for the day today is NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and uh, I'll do a little presentation, and then a little later in the program here in the class, I'll uh, open it up to questions and comments. If you're uh, listening on the web you can participate that way by text in fact you can enter your question or your comment at any time at the bottom of the page in front of you include your name and and your location so uh, we know who you are and where you're calling from and uh, if you'd like to participate by telephone uh, you have the option now that <clears throat> excuse me of Of raising your hand at any point. And you can do both, the web feed and the telephone. Use any of the telephone numbers on the web page in front of you. They're listed right above the player. You'll see primary number, a backup number, and a link that says other numbers with dozens of phone numbers all over the United States. If you're worried about a toll call, find one near you. Use any one of those numbers. And when prompted by the system, just enter the conference ID that you see posted on the web page in front of you. It ends with a pound sign. Enter the full conference ID with the pound sign. And the, uh, the system will tell you that you're on board. And you'll be muted out. If you want to ask a question by telephone, press star 2 on your telephone pad at any time that'll raise your hand and uh, a little bit after my well again the way I structure it is rather than going back and forth to text questions and and uh, audio questions I'll do my presentation then we'll go to the questions as a special segment and we'll do both text and Remember, if you press star 2, that will raise your hand. I can unmute you as an individual, leave everybody else muted, um, talk to you. Everybody will be able to hear, and um, just like a class. And then I'll put you back on mute uh, when you're done. Just allow for the 12 to 15-second delay between the web feed and, and the telephone telephone's live the web feed is a a bit delayed that's how that works uh don't press star two a second time unless you want to lower your hand a third time would raise your hand the fourth time would lower your hand and um, the system will tell you about that also so star two is how you raise and lower your hand all right Well, let's talk a little about neurolinguistic programming, and uh, again, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it. Uh, NLP, or neurolinguistic programming, was uh, really devised or invented, if you will, in the mid-1970s by a couple of fellows out of uh, the University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, Richard Bandler and John Grinder. Now John Grinder was a professor and may still be as far as I know a professor of linguistics at UC Santa Cruz and uh, was greatly inspired by Noam Chomsky who is a linguist and uh, also very active in uh, in progressive political activities, anti-war activities and if you're a uh, anti-war person, and uh, active in the pro-peace movement, I'm sure you're familiar with Noam Chomsky. Well, as a linguist, he contributed quite a bit to this field uh, through the work of uh, Dr. Grinder. Richard Bandler was a undergraduate in the mid-1970s. He had a master's degree as well as a bachelor's degree in philosophy and psychology, But he came to the linguist, Dr. Grinder, in, um, I think, 73 or 74, asking for help in creating a linguistic model or a paradigm of gestalt therapy, which was invented by Fritz Perls. The two of them working together drew upon Perls' gestalt therapy Also, Virginia Satir, who's a family therapist. Uh, The great hypnotherapist, Milton Erickson, and the aforementioned Noam Chomsky. Pulling on these four scholars, they were looking for new language patterns, ways of using language to reprogram behavior. NLP, you see, is I guess the way I would define it is a very advanced and very sophisticated form of hypnosis. Uh, It uses the same altered states of deep relaxation, uh, the alpha and upper theta brainwave states, which are states of hypersuggestibility, that is accelerated learning, where we can absorb or learn new information comprehend and understand that information apply that information with far fewer repetitions we learn understand and perform at an accelerated rate in these deeply relaxed uh, feeling very safe altered states of expanded awareness and that's where hypnosis meets guided imagery, visualization, and various forms of meditation and contemplation. Um, if you're a, a regular student and you've been listening to me for some time, either on the net or on the uh, on the radio back in Los Angeles, you'll remember how strongly I felt and still feel about merging hypnosis and meditation and how tragic it is to me that so many people meditate while knowing nothing of the powers of hypnosis and vice versa there are people that know a great deal about hypnosis and nothing of meditation and the two are allied they go together and neurolinguistic programming um, or NLP Uh, I think embraces both the receptive or the receptivity of meditation and also the metaprogramming aspect of uh, hypnosis and and self-hypnosis, bundles it all together. Uh, I'm going to go into the basic suppositions of NLP at this point, so... I'm not going to spend uh, more time with the story of these two fellows, Bandler and Grinder, other than to say that uh, Bandler ended up in a lot of trouble. He, uh, by the, uh, as I say, their first book uh, came out in the mid-1970s, and then they started writing other books and transcripts from their seminars. Um, Frogs into Princes, for example, is a good book, um, Often a starter book in NLP, and that's essentially a transcript of a seminar they did in the late 1970s or early 80s. But Richard Bandler got into trouble, first with cocaine, and then uh, he actually was tried for murder at one point, the murder of a prostitute in the early to mid-1980s. And though he was found not guilty, uh, in the murder charge, uh, he was all caught up in cocaine usage and couldn't get clients, as you can imagine, would have a hard time getting clients. And his practice went to hell. And then he turned on Grinder, who in many ways was the superior of the two, and um, started fighting like, uh, you know, a couple getting a divorce about rights and who invented what and who had the rights to NLP and to call themselves the chief practitioner of NLP and all of that. Well, finally, by the early 1990s, suffice to say, they settled their differences, they came to some sort of agreement um, in terms of sharing the credit for developing the field and um, also signed a contract at that point, uh, each promising the other not to disparage the other and, um, and degrade their contributions. So forevermore, I suppose Bandler and Grinder will be known as the fathers of neuro-linguistic programming. Um, but it does have a rather sordid uh, uh, history. A lot of that you can just go to uh, Wikipedia and type NLP, or Neuro Linguistic Programming, or the names Bandler and Grinder, and you'll find a lot of that in Wikipedia. There's many other sites that are devoted to NLP. Some basic books on hypnosis are are a good idea, or meditation, if you're coming from either of those points of view, and you have a little bit of experience with either meditation, contemplation, a a receptive use of these altered states, or the metaprogramming, the more causative parts of this accelerated learning in um, uh, basic uh, hypnosis and hypnotherapy. To have a little introduction to one or the other, I think would be very helpful for you if you pursue NLP on your own. But it's not rocket science, you guys. It's something that, you know, if you're smart enough to be here and listen to these classes on Sundays, you're certainly smart enough to pick up um, uh, a book on neuro-linguistic programming. And there are many. I've already mentioned Frogs and the Princes. I think one of my favorites uh, is a book that was written um, by a third individual, Jeannie Laborde. I'm not sure how she spelled her last name, Labordi or Laborde. L-A-B-O-R-D-I-E. I apologize, I should have had that in front of me. She wrote a great book 25 years ago or so, maybe 20 years ago, called Influencing with Integrity that I thought was a very good, and remains a very good treatment of uh, neurolinguistic programming and all that's involved. Especially the idea of being in your integrity, because from the beginning NLP was designed to be used primarily in business to improve or enhance. Not not clinically. You see, this is not. This is used clinically now, but like many other tools. But it was really designed for use by businessmen and businesswomen to be more influential but the idea was to do it in your integrity Um, here we are in the year 2009 that we've all become uh, so cynical we did a show on cynicism recently Uh, you might find that as a a kind of a contradiction in terms, what? business? integrity? Uh, that's a (laughs) that's like military intelligence, they just don't go together Uh, Well, actually, they do, and and, and I'm sure, uh, uh, speaking for the vast majority of people in this class here today, uh, you're doing some form of business, and you are in your integrity um, as a gift to yourself. You know, when we operate from integrity, uh, from honesty, uh, that's a gift to the self. We don't necessarily do that. Primarily because other people benefit from our integrity, and though they do. Uh, it's like forgiveness and compassion. The, the best reason to forgive someone or be compassionate is that it's a gift to yourself to stop dragging around the vengeance and the animosity and to just give all of that up. You know, people are so resistant to forgiveness. Um, well, the, the, this is similar uh, you want to do business in in your integrity, to be in your integrity in all areas of your life is to be happier and more successful uh and certainly um to promote your growth and in and, and to be more fulfilled. The uh, the the three primary components of FocusedPassion.com dot com we refer to as growth, success and fulfillment and, all three of those, personal growth, success, and fulfillment, really require that we be in our integrity. So that's one great NLP book that you might want to check out, Influencing with Integrity. I believe it's still in print, and if not, you could certainly find used uh, editions at the uh, Amazon net of uh, Jeannie Labordi's book, Influencing with Integrity, and then Frogs into Prince's um is another good one okay. uh, there's plenty in the field that, that you can choose from what I'm going to do is review some of the basic suppositions and I think you'll find these uh, fascinating especially if you have any background as a therapist as a healer or as a client working with healers therapists or, or counselors uh, this is pretty powerful stuff So the very first principle or supposition, Bandler and Grindler actually called them presuppositions. You could call it uh, the first hypothesis or the first postulate of neuro-linguistic programming. And actually, let me remind you, if it's not obvious, neuro refers to brain cells, uh, neurons, and linguistic is the impact of language. So, neuro-linguistic programming is to use language to program the mind. All right, because most of our behavior is limited by language. Um, doesn't need to be. We can think of and conceive of concepts that we do not have words for. Uh, the difficulty that we sometimes have expressing ourselves, or or finding just the right word, is evidence of that, that we can comprehend and understand things that we are not able to express verbally or find uh, difficult um, to express, finding the right words. Nevertheless, the vast majority of humanity is limited by language. Uh, So if they are illiterate or if they're semi-literate, or if they're literate but just don't read, they don't have a strong vocabulary, your understanding is severely limited by the very fact that you don't have the language. It's, it's ultimately not true, but in practice, it is true that most people's thinking is limited uh, by the language, and, and as you're about to find out, also by their physical senses and sensations. So, Having said that, let's start with the, the first postulate, supposition or presupposition, hypothesis, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, of neuro-linguistic programming is laid down by these inventors, Bandler and Grinder. And the very first one, if you're taking notes, here you go. Number one, perception is reality. I like to turn that around. And reality is Perception. Uh, Life is subjective. Uh, Steve likes to say perception is reality except when it's not. Uh, You can argue a case for objectivity, for an object, for example, or a circumstance even, a relationship, an event, has a certain objective quality. You can say, well, on this date, at this time, this event happened. Or this object can be weighed and measured and we can describe the color and the way it appears in white light. Um, people will even go farther and describe truth or, or, or falsehood uh, in an objective sense. Uh, I found it very interesting as a journalist Um, to deal with policies of objectivity for or in the companies that I worked for, at ABC, at CBS, and at other radio companies and corporations that I worked for. Uh, I worked for Disney, I worked for Citadel, I worked for Capital Cities, uh, more corporations and companies than I can remember. Virtually all of them had for the newsroom policies of objectivity but at one point about 10 years into my career I went back to my college well I started teaching in uh, Mount San Antonio College actually in the early 1980s I started teaching broadcast journalism at the college level so that gave me an opportunity to go, to go back and check and was there any mention I wondered of objectivity in my journalism textbooks. And it turns out that there is not. You will not find objectivity referred to in in, in most books on journalism, broadcast or print, uh, because like the Mayor hearings this week around objective and bringing your experience to the bench, uh, there is no objectivity. We can... From our subjective and personal points of view, uh, try to arrive at the best sense of objectivity that we can. But if you have not experienced something, it would be difficult to be objective about it. Um, you know, if 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 because of my lack of experience in the military and warfare, uh, it's difficult for me to be objective about. War. I just don't have the experience, and thank God. I, I mean, I, I find the whole institution to be uh, uh, barbaric, and it's difficult to talk about because I suppose there there was a need for war in the past, but we're rapidly outgrowing and, and outstripping uh, warfare. There's just so damn much money to be made by Daddy Warbucks in the institution of war that. It will continue for a while. But that's my subjective point of view, and that is my reality. And so the first supposition of NLP is subjectivity, perception. Your particular point of view is your reality. And there's just no point as a journalist or as anybody else living in the world to put very much stock in so-called objectivity right? Otherwise you'd have to believe that Fox News really is fair and balanced when you know better or that reality TV, this is my favorite one, that there's something real about reality TV. You know, (laughs) reality TV is totally phony and fake and uh, yet it's called reality TV. So Perception is reality. Reality is perception. Are there qualities of objectivity, of fairness, of accuracy, of honesty, of balance that we can bring to our perception? Well, of course. But at the end of the day, I think you got to accept that for every individual in a given context, right, at a given meeting, for example, or, you know, in a certain circumstance, whatever the number of individuals, that's going to be the number of realities. You know, If there's 150 people in a movie theater watching a movie, they're watching 150 different movies. And you can argue it all you want at the end of the day. It's going to be personal. There's just no way that you can uh, argue that any two people are going to see a movie. This is my example, or their lives uh, in exactly the same way. I mean, if there's if there's ten witnesses to a traffic accident, why don't the cops just interview one of them and let the other nine go? Uh, well, we've got their version. That'll do. Uh, no, the police will come and they'll interview every witness they can find because they know. That none of them will agree on every point. They might agree on some of the points, but uh, their job is to collect all of those subjective points of view to try to discern what really happened. And if you haven't made that step in your life, uh, make it now. Step up to the reality that your reality is personal, Right? and that reality is a function of perception. It's how you see it. It's not what's done to you that's reality. It's how you interpret it, it's how you see it. And this is the springboard for NLP. This is where it all begins, okay? Second supposition or presupposition of neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, and this is a little more pithy here, The meaning of the communication is the message you get. Whatever you hear, let's use the example of me teaching this class and you listening by and large. You'll have a chance to comment with the text webpage in front of you or on the telephone. Hit star 2. You can raise your hand uh, at any point. But The meaning of my communication has much less to do with what I say and what my intention may be than what you hear. And it's important for me as a teacher, as a manager, as a parent, any kind of leadership role, to understand that meaning is a function of the response that i get to a communication it doesn't matter what my intention is well it matters but again it <laughs> at the end of the day it's it's what an individual hears that matters and you can see how this dovetails with number 1 the idea of subjectivity or or its perception that is the reality and now the response i get to what i say is where I'm going to find the meaning. Okay. Um, so it's an argument for individuality and for subjectivity, for multiple realities. It's a very important concept for us to, as we grow and mature, to break out of the, gosh, is it too harsh to call it a juvenile belief that we're all having the same experience that if we all sit side by side on the beach and watch the sun go down, do you really think we're all watching the same sunset? I mean, how could it possibly be? Or if we're all sitting at a concert, it could be a rock show or a classical symphony, uh, you know, 5, 10, 20, 100 people, whatever, 1,000, 10,000, that they're all hearing the same thing. It's absurd on the surface. Uh, to believe that we're having unique experiences, and that's our reality, our perception, and, and the meaning is in how how we describe that experience. And y- you want to honor that diversity and not argue with it and say, "No, you're wrong." That, uh, it's like standing in front of a painting and and arguing about whether it's a good painting or a bad painting. People can disagree, so. Loosen your grip and allow for that in your life, right? It's okay if people disagree. In fact, it's beyond okay. It's, <laughs> it's essential. Remember, you live in a universe that refuses to clone itself, uh, that will not replicate itself in any way. It, it does not want nor need redundancy. The universe exists for life, to express itself uniquely and and diversely and uh, yeah we can build coalitions and learn to work together and and there are leaders and followers and and those who should just get out of the way but um, it's all going to be based on an understanding that we're all dreaming a different dream we're all watching a different movie and that's a beautiful thing that's a rich thing the third supposition of neurolinguistic programming, all distinctions that human beings are able to make concerning our environment and our behavior can be usefully represented through the five physical senses: visually, auditorily, kinesthetically, or through the olfactory or gustatory sense. So, seeing, hearing. Feeling in your body, tactily, and then smelling, that's olfactory, and gustatory is the taste. All right. Listen to this supposition. This is extraordinary to hold this out 30 years ago, 35 years ago. All distinctions that human beings are able to make concerning our environment and our behavior can usefully be represented through our ability to describe how it looks, how it sounds, how it feels, how it smells, and how it tastes. So in neuro-linguistic programming, these are called representational systems, the five physical senses. Representational systems, or for short, rep systems. And if you've had a little exposure to NLP in your life, you've probably heard of rep systems. Let me explain this briefly. The first rep system is the visual. The second is the auditory. And the third is the kinesthetic, the olfactory, and the gustatory The feeling in the body, the smelling, and the tasting all rolled into one. So the five senses by which all human experience and behavior can be described and related break down into three rep systems. Visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. The last one, kinesthetic, including not only tactile feeling, but taste and smell. These are the three primary rep systems, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. Now, Bandler and Grinder felt that, and this is pretty much accepted now, that everybody uses all three, but that the vast majority of us rely primarily on one of the three rep systems Pretty much to the exclusion of the other two. So it's like maybe a a 80%, 10%, 10% kind of a deal, right? And the 80% that you rely on, that would be your primary rep system. This is just how you organize information and how you relate to the world. So a visual person, for example, can be easily identified so that you can create rapport and have greater influence with them by matching their rep system. And the way you identify a visual is, first of all, they tend to be hyperactive. They tend to be um, uh, type A behavior people, really go, go, go. Uh, they're um, I don't want to say ADHD, but somewhat hyperactive, hyperkinetic. Uh, type A type type people, uh, they tend to gesture with their hands and, and they gesture up high uh, when they break eye contact with you, their eyes will roll up as if they're visualizing pictures and their use of verbs and predicates is such that they'll talk about the way things look or how they appear or can't you see what I'm talking about That would be a visual. An auditory is a little more slow. This is the middle of the three. The auditory will gesture, but they won't gesture at the head level or above. They'll gesture more in the area of the upper chest if if they do gesture. And they're a little slower, a little more thoughtful, and again, When they break eye contact, their eyes will go out to the side, to the left or to the right, as if they're listening in their heads. The visual, of course, organizes thoughts and feelings by pictures in their mind. The auditory person hears voices or dialogue. I'm very auditory. And when I get an idea, a new idea, an insight, or an understanding, I don't usually get a picture of it. Um, I get a voice. I have an inner voice that explains it to me. What are the reasons that I ended up in radio, I guess. And uh, I, uh, People often say, you sure like the sound of your own voice. Well, actually, I do. I, I, I like sounds, everything about sounds. I love music. I like to hear the birds. I, I like to hear my cat purr, the sound is rich and wonderful to me so it's likely if I break eye contact with you you'll notice my eyes will go to the side as if I'm listening rather than being rolled up as if I'm looking and my use as an auditory the use of predicates and verbs is going to be more along the line of listen and I'm not going to say look the way I see it is a visual would do that But I'm going to say, listen, it sounds to me like, why can't you hear what I'm saying? Okay. And then the third would be the kinesthetic. Now, of the three, the kinesthetic is the slowest of all. They tend to move slowly. Um, They tend to look down rather than up or out. Uh, they, They pause in their speech as if they're... Reaching for just the right word, deep diving to grope around inside their bellies to find just the right word that can express the feeling that they have in their bodies. Kinesthetics experience life in their bodies, and they talk about the way things feel to them. Again, they break eye contact; they look down, and their predicate and verbal usage is more along the lines of uh, the way it feels to me or I'm trying to get a handle on it or, hey, why don't you just get a grip, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, A visual learner, you would show them pictures. How are you going to teach a visual child uh, the alphabet? You'll show them pictures of the letter. What about the auditory child? How do they learn best? Well, they would best learn with phonetics, the sounding of the word. And the kinesthetic, well, they would do well if they had blocks, uh, shapes of of letters that they could hold on to and feel with their fingers. Now, as adults, the idea is to, if you're a clinician or a practitioner, that's one thing, if you're a student, it's sort of on you. I'm, I guess, in a way, I'm putting it on you to decide, are you visual, auditory, or kinesthetic? Again, do you, do you tend to look up and, and experience new ideas and concepts as pictures? Do you say, look at this, and why can't you see it? And It appears to me. Are you kinesthetic? Do you grope for just the right word? Do you go slow? Do you look down into your body? Do you feel your feelings in your body, literally? Or are you somewhere in the middle, the auditory, that is moderate in their energy level, looks out instead of up or down, and is likely to say, listen, I want you to hear what I'm saying. It sounds to me like. Understand yourself, find your primary rep system, and you'll be able to develop the other two. Doesn't that make sense? You say, well, why would I want to develop the other two? So that you can flesh out your reality. So that you can have a picture and a sound and a feeling. All three. That that makes life a whole lot richer. But even more to the point, so that you can match and create rapport with another individual in business or in your daily life and affairs at school or at home or with your best friends. Again, not in a selfish or, or exclusive or manipulative way, but to find the rep system of somebody that you're engaged with so that you can match their rep system, right? If your spouse is a visual and you're an auditory and they're talking about the way things look and you keep talking about, listen to me, why why can't you hear what I'm saying? And they say, well, I can see what you're saying and look. You're going to be like ships passing in the night. And when first offered this, even now, some of you might be dismissing what I'm saying and find it hard to believe that so much miscommunication or failure to communicate clearly could come from the fact that we rely so so heavily on one rep system or another. Again, I think it's about 80-10-10 in most people. So 80% of your understanding of reality, is going to be one of these three. <laughs> so, and then the other two may be 10% each. Well, again, the, the, the two important points here are, number one, as you find your primary rep system, you can develop the other two to be more well-rounded, But also you can then discover the rep system of another individual that you want to influence and persuade and communicate with. Match their rep system. If they're a visual, you become a visual. If they're talking about how things sound and they're looking out to the side rather than up or down, you shift into auditory, right? If they're a kinesthetic person, Give them feedback that includes the word feel. You know, I feel your pain. (laughs) Match their rep system. And there's more to this. There's even matching their breathing uh, techniques called pacing, where you create this rapport and then you slow them down. Like if somebody's breathing rapidly, you match their breathing you model their body language, that's part of this, all around creating rapport and then persuading with integrity with the extra influence that you get from understanding how they organize information. Okay. Now, these are the first three of the basic suppositions of NLP and probably the most important three. Right? If this is your first exposure to neuro-linguistic programming, I've already given you a lot to work with, but there are, there's more. So I'm going to run through the others real quickly, spending less time on each than I spent on the first three. And then we'll go to your questions, whether they're text or, again, if you want to go to the telephone and call any one of those numbers, Enter the conference ID ending with the pound on the telephone dial as the system prompts you. And then if you have a question, star 2 will raise your hand. If you hit it a second time, it will lower your hand. And we'll go to the text questions and the live questions on the telephone in just a minute. So to summarize, the top three: perception is reality. There really is no objective reality. Life is what you make it. Okay. Life has its objective qualities, but you just you know, in all practical terms, you got to come down on the side of accepting that if there's five billion people in the world, they're having five billion very different and unique experiences. Of the world around them perception is reality number one number two the meaning of the communication is in the response you get to it it's important to have a clear intention and attempt to communicate whatever it is you want to communicate but the ultimate meaning is in how it's heard and the response that's played back and then thirdly the idea of organizing information according to physical sense and sensation, and that the five physical senses are broken down into the three rep systems, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. The last one, kinesthetic, including feelings in the body, tactile sensation, plus olfactory and gustatory, the ability to smell and taste. Okay. Let me review some of the others quickly, and maybe in the future we'll come back and and go a little more deeply into NLP if you feel like it. If you like this stuff, this is an area where I help a lot of uh, other facilitators in the field. I work with psychologists. I work with psychiatrists. Uh, I work with neurosurgeons, but more commonly with family therapists, with body workers, with hypnotherapists and NLP practitioners. Um, to help them incorporate uh, these suppositions, these, these concepts into their practice. Um, so let's review some of the others. Uh, the next one on my list is the resources an individual needs to affect a change are already within them. The idea that life never gives you a problem that you can't handle Uh, That's another way of saying this, that everything you need to create change, healing, growth, improvement, betterment, unfoldment, everything you need is available to you. You have hundreds of millions, even billions of brain cells at birth idling, waiting for instruction. What do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? It's been 2,500 years since Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, and yet the vast majority of us live our entire lives without seriously examining our point of view our worldview our belief systems why we think and feel and act the way we do for the most part these are not critical judgments that we've made it's just uh, accepted beliefs that we've assumed because they we were born into them or they came from authoritative or high credible sources and I noticed this doing talk shows over the years where people, if cornered by me saying, well, why do you believe that? My talk shows were always less about what you believe than why you believe it. We would use current events to get people to talk about what they believe, but then what was different about all of my radio programs is I would then go to why. And, well, why do you believe that? And, most people had no idea why they believed what they believed. I, I, that's what was, to me anyway, what was so fascinating about those radio shows. And sometimes people would say really stupid things, like, well, everybody knows that's true. You know? What? The earth is flat? <laughs> and the sun revolves around it? Everybody knows the earth is only 6,000 years old, and everybody knows capital punishment is a deterrent, and... Everybody knows there has to be war, and everybody knows we're going to pollute the environment. You don't want to go back to horse-drawn carriages and kerosene lamps now, do you? And, you know, this this is a very critical period that we're experiencing as we move into this 21st century in the evolution of humanity, where significant numbers of us are saying, wait a minute, I... I think it's time I check in and re-examine some of my beliefs here. And instead of using school to train everybody to think the same way and act the same way and stand in line and toe the line and do everything the same way, we got to teach people to think for themselves, right? And however old you are and wherever you believe yourself to be in your education, to learn to think for yourself, well, not only is that a way of knowing yourself, but wouldn't it work the other way? Wouldn't you need to know yourself to think for yourself? Isn't that like cyclic round and round? The more I know about myself, the more the the better job I can do at being independent and really thinking for myself and then that'll help me know myself better and that'll help me think for myself and then I'll begin to realize that I can believe in myself, and like this fourth supposition says, what if everything I need to create change and growth, improvement, and healing in my life is available within me? Right, that is a basic, fundamental truth. The next one is uh, again, I just love all of these. The next one I, I really like: the map is not the territory. Uh, There's an old Buddhist saying that the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. It's just (laughs) just pointing at the moon. Uh, I like even better the saying, the map is not the territory. We get so caught up in our linguistic constructions of reality, whether they're visual, auditory, or kinesthetic, we begin to confuse our opinions for facts. And we forget that many of our opinions are not factual. Um, They might be somewhat factual uh, but if perception is reality uh, that's always a matter of degree. And to believe that your limited awareness is a full awareness and that your ideas are facts is part of confusing the map for the territory. We should always look at our understanding of ourselves and the world around us as a dynamic, unfolding, growing process and that the more you know, the more there is to learn. The wise individual always lives his or her life backwards. Um, You know, we have this recent film of Benjamin Button And uh, the story that precedes it, and there's also um, the story of Merlin, who's supposedly, you know, the wizard in King Arthur's time, who lived his life backward Um, in the old mystery schools of Egypt. You would enter, after uh, making application, if you were accepted to the mystery school, you would enter as a hierophant or an expert And after many, many years of study, you would graduate as a neophyte or a beginner. Again, the idea of living your life backward. In Buddhism, there's a reference to learning with beginner's mind. For example, I've played guitar for a little over 40 years now. Um, (laughs) Pretty much the majority of my life. And yet, I'm it's really in my interest to approach guitar whenever I go to pick it up as if I'd never even played the thing before rather than playing what I already know. I'd rather focus on what I do not know and learn that and, and incorporate that. So to live your life backwards is to realize that only a fool believes that they are filled with knowledge. Um, Actually, you could define it this way. You could say, uh, to gain knowledge, you add to what you understand, but to gain wisdom, you take away from what you understand. That's a, a, a popular quotation in Taoism. Lao Tzu supposedly said, um, to add to knowledge, or to gain knowledge, add to, but to gain wisdom, subtract from so the wise woman and man is a person that as they gain knowledge, seek wisdom by stepping back and looking at an ever greater picture, a more comprehensive and more inclusive view of what it is that they have yet to understand, and thus they promote their growth. But don't confuse your modeling of reality for reality. The map is not the territory. Your beliefs are simply your beliefs. And the idea that they're factual, uh, that's, not, that's not all that important. What's a fact and what is right? And somebody who disagrees with you has to be wrong because you have to be right. Our linguistic constructions are merely maps. They're not reality. Reality is perception. Perception. Is there an objective reality out there? It's easy to argue, yes. But how would you ever know? Because your perception of it is so unique. Let's look at a couple others. I like this one, too. The positive worth of the individual, this is really directed at a practitioner or a clinician. The positive worth of your client, of the individual, is always held constant. You never question their worth or value as an individual, while the value and the appropriateness of internal and or external behavior is questioned. So if somebody comes to you with a problem or a dysfunction, some sort of anxiety disorder or neurosis or depression or they think they're going crazy or whatever, they um, remember that that's their behavior that you're questioning, not the worth of the individual. I have a stock phrase that I use with people, uh, usually in the first or second session, and I often repeat it. I'll tell people, you are not broken, and you are not defective. There's nothing wrong with you that we can't fix. Right? But or heal, or learn about and understand that we can't change. But you're not defective. You're, you're not bad or wrong. And people are so hard on themselves. I mean, with few exceptions, your worst critic is you. You would never allow other people to talk to you the way you talk to yourself. And it's sad. To recognize what people do to themselves, how they hurt themselves, and beat themselves up, how they criticize themselves as if there's some merit in that. No, don't do that. Criticize the behavior, if you will. Ask yourself, why am I repeating this dysfunctional behavior that causes so many problems? What is my secondary gain or the hidden payoff? That I'm getting and behaving in this destructive way. Why do I sabotage myself? For example, hold the worth of yourself or your client in high regard, and question instead only the the appropriateness of the behavior. Excuse me a second here. <coughs> I have a little sip of a little sip of my coffee couple of more, and then we'll go to your questions and comments. There is a positive intention motivating every behavior and a context in which every behavior has value. Every behavior, no matter how destructive it might look, has some positive intention. You know, this is sort of a scientific way of saying people are basically good, and they want to be good, they want to be loving and kind, they want to be loved and lovable, they, uh, you know, we're born beautiful, we're born happy and giggling, and, you know, a baby can get uncomfortable and cry, and as it gets older and learns the world around it, it goes through these problems with uh, sharing, it has those sharing challenges, and Then it learns to assert itself as a separate being. It finds out it's not mom, it's not the environment, I'm a separate being. And about that time it learns to say no. Isn't that a charming stage in child development when little Bobby or Sally learn to say no? (laughs) Right? Well, even that has a positive intention. That's called individuation. And it may upset you when the kid says no, but... They need to learn to assert themselves. So there's always some positive intention motivating the behavior, no matter how negative, nihilistic, or or self-destructive it may be. And the last one I'll mention is called feedback versus failure. And this is the idea that all results and all behaviors are achievements, whether they look like it or not, whether they are the desired outcome for a given Uh, task or or situation or not Uh, doesn't matter that everything is an achievement Uh, I'll illustrate this by reminding you of the famous story about uh, uh, Thomas Edison who had failed quote unquote over a thousand times to invent a light bulb before he finally found the right element, the right filament made out of tungsten alloy Um, to work as an electric light. And somebody said to Edison at one point, weren't you frustrated by all those failures? And Edison said, failure? What failure? He said, I learned a thousand different ways not to make a light bulb. So to see failure as an opportunity to learn, uh, to Go beyond the negative connotation that school drummed into you, that failure was a bad thing. And in your life and affairs, see failure as a stepping stone, as an opportunity to learn. You take a test. The most important questions on the test are the ones you got wrong, not the ones you got right. Rather than accept the grade and then go on to the next lesson, with your score of 60 or 70 or 80%, whatever, look at the ones you got wrong. And don't go on until you get all those right. That's the way a video game works. You don't go on to the next level until you master this level. And only then do you go on to the next level. To send children forward to the next lesson when they didn't do 100% is absurd. And if we're out of school now and adults living in the world, we have to embrace our mistakes and realize that what most people call a failure is really an opportunity for feedback and an opportunity to learn. And those are just some of the basic, those are the primary and and basic suppositions of neuro-linguistic programming that I thought I'd share with you today. So again, Use the telephone number on the web page in front of you if you want to ask your question to me live, or use the text on the page in front of you, and uh, you can leave me a message. Let's do those first. So far, we haven't had too many people call. The vast majority of people are just here to listen. They don't want to do either, but we've got very good attendance today, and a thought maybe we would have some people call. So any one of the telephone numbers on the web page in front of you, provided you're listening live, of course, today's July 29, or I'm sorry, today's uh, July 19, 2009. If you're listening to a replay, nobody's going to pick up the phone. Otherwise, if you are listening live, you can use the telephone number, enter the conference ID, any one of those numbers. Use the enter the conference ID when you're prompted, and if you want to ask your question of me personally, press star two, and that'll raise your hand. Otherwise, you can type a message into the text page in front of you, and uh, even if it's just to say hello, uh, hello and, and uh, aloha. Let's start with the text messages in uh, La Habra. Carol is with us, as always. and uh, I don't think Carol's missed one class yet. We'll have to come up with a special certificate for Carol. It's always nice, Carol, to know that you're out there. It means a lot. And she says, great subject, NLP. And hi again to Michael Indoree. In Irvine, Robert Fiegel, a regular uh, student, is with us. And he says, again, aloha, great topic, makes you think. He says, this is one class I'm going to have to listen to again and study my notes in detail to totally absorb. Have a great week and peace. Uh, Thank you, Robert. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad you feel that way because there's a lot to ponder. I'm going really fast, and there's a lot to ponder here, but I'm glad you like it. In uh, Tucson, Arizona, Lorelei Hatch is with us. She says, Aloha, Michael. She says, wow, I've never even heard of NLP before. Learning and using these techniques will be a great way to improve my ability to communicate in business and with friends and family. Uh, Great class as always, and thanks for the education. Peace and love to you and Doreen. And that's from Lorelei in Tucson, Arizona, actually. Surprise, Arizona, nearby. And uh, thanks for that, Lorelei. Yeah, again, the idea that um, I especially like the idea that we can uh, have a greater influence on people by matching rapport, um, creating rapport, and then matching rep systems is probably a better way of saying it. Um, You know, a simple little trick along these lines is to acknowledge some merit or some degree of truth or some degree of merit in the argument of somebody who opposes you. You know how the tug-of-war begins. Somebody says something, you disagree, um, that raises their hackles, they disagree and argue back like the family getting together for Thanksgiving or Christmas and pretty soon somebody's throwing the turkey at you and yelling and, uh, you know, religion and politics does it all the time. You don't have to go there. You can assert yourself and get away with it and be a leader and be extraordinarily powerful if you know just a little of this NLP. And one of the tricks is to find some aspect of the argument being made by your so-called opponent that you can agree with, that you can acknowledge. And it can be some little tiny insignificant thing. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you acknowledge it. And a good stock phrase, again, for those of you who are note-takers, write this down, a good stock phrase is, I can understand how you'd feel that way. Try it out loud. Uh, let's all do it together. I can understand how you might feel that way or how you would feel that way. I can understand how you'd feel that way. That's all you got to say. If you want to add to it, say, that makes sense. You know, I certainly agree with that part of what you're saying. What do they do? Oh, he loves me. She loves me. They're really interested. They care about me. They You know, they acknowledge that there is some truth to what I'm saying, and they drop their guard. And then you come in and ask for the same thing. You say, now, my primary point is simply, this is on the heels of you finding something to acknowledge in their argument. It could be real simple. You know, that part where you said the sky is blue uh, you know, for the most part, I'll agree with you on that. Uh, my point is simply, sometimes clouds roll in and you don't see the blue sky. I I admit beyond the clouds, it probably is still blue. But that's not what I meant by gray sky. I'm just ad living here off the top of my head. <laughs> what This is powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, a few months ago, I did a, a class on um, the so-called heart talk, how to resolve disputes in a relationship, in a romantic relationship, at home with your spouse, with you, your wife, your husband, your partner, and a uh, process I call reflective, well, I call it heart talk. Clinically, it's often called reflective communication. And one of the key components of reflective communication is finding something about your opponent's argument the person that disagrees with you and therefore must be wrong, find something that you can acknowledge. Give them a bone, you know, and they'll curl right up at your feet. And, uh, (laughs) you know, turn from monsters into pussycats. Oh, he really likes me. I mean, it's so powerful. And then you move in and make your point. And I learned this in a number of ways. This is core to mediation and to counseling. A lot of people will bring their counselors a desire for adjudication. They want to know from the counselor who's right and who's wrong. One of us has to be wrong and one of us has to be right. And, of course, any good counselor is going to reject that out of hand and say, no, I uh, I'm not here to adjudicate, I'm here to help each of you understand and acknowledge the other one's point of view. Okay, a very important distinction and difference. Okay, let me refresh the screen and see if we have anybody else online that wants to say hi. Uh, Jacob in England is with us again this week. Hello, Jacob. Jacob Martin, he says, greetings. I will listen to this one again. A lot to think about and to try to practice peace. Back at you, Jacob. Thank you. Aloha. Irby in Lake Balboa, Irby Gascon. Hello, Irby. Nice to hear from you. Um, he says, Thanks so much for all you do. Love all your classes. Thank you, Irby. And let's see if we have anybody on the telephone here that wants to be acknowledged. And apparently not. Let me refresh this page. Nobody has a question. Nobody wants to raise their hand. Okay. Fine. Most people are still listening on the web rather than the telephone, that's fine. Whatever works for you, whatever makes you happy. I've upgraded the site so we can do both, Um, but whatever pleases you. And thanks for the great turnout today. I think this is probably a record turnout. We've got over 30 people listening live. That's a nice-sized class, 30 people listening live. and. We know that three or four times that number will listen to the replay. Most people listen to this after the fact, but to have so many people here live is fun, and really, to make it interactive is, is fun. So, let's do a little guided imagery around NLP, a little meditation exercise, and we'll call it a day, and I'll let you go. Right. So, if this is a good time for you, get comfortable, and relax, sit up straight but not rigid, open your shoulders, open your rib cage by putting your shoulders back and your head should feel balanced on your neck and shoulders, take two or three, nice slow deep breaths, ideally inhaling through the nose and you can exhale through the nose or the mouth. Inhaling again as slowly as possible. Hold as you peak and then exhale as slowly as you can. Going beyond where you'd normally stop all the way out. As you inhale, relax, but imagine pulling in strength. As you exhale, continue to relax and feel the letting go. And then turn your breathing over to autopilot release and allow your body to breathe itself close your eyes if you haven't already and continue to create and sense a letting go feeling as if muscular tension is just falling away as if you can imagine how it might feel to be a stick of butter on a warm day and you just slowly soften like butter in the sunshine slowly melting softening to the core of your being yielding to a feeling of being very safe and very relaxed Remember, you don't need to quiet the mind or calm the emotional nature to practice meditation. You practice meditation so that in time, the mind learns to quiet and the emotional nature becomes calm. And for the purposes of our exercise today, I would just have you reflect for a moment on your individuality, on not only your diversity, but everyone is different in their DNA, and their fingerprints, but more importantly, in the way they understand the world around them. Most of what we understand is limited by the language we use to describe it. So think of a problem that you're having or have been having in your life and look at the way and listen to the way and feel the way. You use language to describe that problem. to lock yourself, to freeze yourself into this problem. And now consider a better way to define this situation. For example, if you've been calling yourself a failure, can you use different language? that acknowledges that what you've been calling failure is an opportunity to learn. If you've been feeling like there's something bad or wrong with you, consider instead that you're just fine, but you've been confused by false concepts that Maybe served you at one point, but you've outgrown and have now become dysfunctional. But treat yourself gently. You're not bad. It's the behavior that's bad. Think about how we would have felt as little children if instead of yelling at us and telling us that we're bad, little boys and girls, our parents had said, I love you very much, and you will always be loved but I'm really upset about this behavior. And the behavior is bad, and you are good, and I love you. Now let's talk about improving the behavior. Very important distinction. Have you been too hard? Are you being way too critical of yourself? For when you argue for your limitations, they become yours when you fight for your right to be essentially a helpless victim of life you create that reality the way you perceive the world and the language that you use to describe the world is for most people the prison in which they live. When it could be this magnificent, unbounded opportunity to do, have, and be more and more and more. Consider, do you tend to be a visual? Do you you even know? Do, Do you think in terms of pictures? Do your thoughts race? Do you argue with yourself a lot? Do you you verbally talk about how things look? How they appear? Why it's easily seen? Why can't you see? Or are you more of an auditory that says listen rather than look? And it sounds like, and why can't you hear me the way I hear it is? Or do you tend to be mostly kinesthetic and in your feelings and slow to respond, to even rely on language? Whichever of those three is your primary rep system, develop the other two. Watch other people. Listen to other people. Reach out and feel other people. And connect with them. Is this person a visual? Watch their eyes. Do they roll up? When they break eye contact, do they look to the side or do they look down, visual, auditory, kinesthetic? Do they talk about the way things look, the way they sound, or the way they feel? Are they hyperactive or moderately active or slow in their activity? And then match that rep system, whether it's your children or your parents, your your spouse, your boss, or somebody that works for you, whatever the situation or circumstance, connect, meet them on their level. Know that everyone's basically good. But also know the map is not the territory. And you can lift people to a more inclusive and expanded world view where they can see what you have seen. Many times when someone disagrees with you and you believe they're wrong, they're not opposing you. They just may not know as much as you do. And if you believe that's the case, instead of opposing them, educate them. Do it by creating rapport, by acknowledging the part of their position that you can acknowledge, whatever part that is. Go out of your way to say in your integrity, whenever you can, well, uh, you know, that makes sense. I can understand how you'd feel that way. Give what it is you'd like to receive. It always works. It's exceedingly powerful if you do it from love and truth and honesty, you're always in your integrity. You create better relationships and more understanding. You become a true leader of people. And life becomes very, very rich and very rewarding, very wonderful. To think for yourself, you really have to know who you are. This is a wonderful way to know yourself and to understand yourself. And if you are a practitioner, whatever, a masseuse, a body worker, a performer, a dancer, a singer, a craftsman, an artist, a therapist, a doctor, whatever is your role of working with other people, honor that they're basically good that their intention is good and even when they sabotage themselves and hurt others there's something good deep in there underneath the fear underneath the self torment and even the self sabotage even the death wish that many people carry with them is a will to good and a will to love find that Acknowledge that, connect with that, build rapport, and then lift the frequency. Raise the argument of the conflict from the inevitable heat to a frequency of light. That we might understand through the disagreement some degree of common ground, some merit, in each other's argument even if we continue to disagree in other areas the rewards for this are outrageously wonderful so commit yourself simply form a little contract and commit yourself to wanting to better understand the language you use to describe your reality and your abilities that you might free yourself from the prison that you've made of your life by limited beliefs and limited negative language and talk to yourself in a more loving and positive way. Treat yourself with gentleness and kindness that you might understand your goodness Your will to good and your will to love. And then be able to empathize and see it in other people. But you must begin with yourself. Know thyself. Like Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. And then as surely as the day follows the night, you couldn't be false to anyone. You couldn't lie to anybody if you were being true to yourself commit to that take a risk maybe I really am a good person maybe there's nothing really wrong with me except my limited belief systems and my behavior and my limited world view and if I could just change the way I look at things and the way I talk to myself and the language I use in speaking to others I can refine this whole experience of living in the world. Refine, transform, transmute, resurrect, <laughs> uplift at one. Every day in every way, better and better. And with that intention held gently in your palms, Take a slow deep breath now, fill your lungs, hold for a moment and then as you exhale, uh, open your eyes now, wide awake, alert, back of the room feeling really refreshed and rested with a whole new understanding of the subjective nature of the reality you've made around you. Hang loose. Thanks for being here tell your friends about it and you know if you've got an extra 99 cents a week I didn't say 99 cents a day I said a buck a week if you've got $3.96 to support keeping this website ad free and Focused Passion free of ads this webinar ad free and the Focused Passion programs free of ads all the articles free the webinar free You can uh, help a lot just by subscribing at $0.99 a week, $3.96 a month. You get actually 52 programs for the price of 48 If you just go to focusedpassion.com and uh, leave your credit card in your wallet, just click on the button that says maybe later, just send me the free stuff. And you get six sample programs for free. The Splash page has a dozen little excerpts to listen to. Steve and I teach in conversation, compelling conversation. It's not just a lecture. And I think you'll find it exciting. It's studio quality. We we don't have to do it over the phone like this one. And uh, you can send that podcast to your iTunes player, the podcast folder in iTunes. Use the reader that's built into your browser or the built-in player on the site. But, uh, hey, check it out. It's got an ED in there, focusedpassion.com. I think you'll feel good about yourself. and You can also share an unlimited number of both the webinar and the premium audio program by using the built-in gadgets on each of the sites, theagelesswisdom.com, focusedpassion.com both have, send one to a friend players that are absolutely free. So if you can see your way clear to support us at even a minimal level, pocket change, um, that would really really be appreciated. Uh, join the group of people that are already contributing and subscribing to the premium audio programs. If you like this show, you'll love that. Okay, And that's a way you can help out. We want these shows to stay free and ad free and both sites ad free I hate websites that are cluttered with all those Google ads and I don't want to go there if at all possible Okay, so that would help out not a lot of money on your end but it adds up on this end pays for our bandwidth and, and uh, it would be great Okay, so thank you again for being with us today I went a little long my apologies for that Remember, this program immediately goes into perpetual replay at theagelesswisdom.com. Send them to your friends. Watch for the newsletter. It comes out usually on Friday. And uh, have a wonderful week. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Maui, Hawaii, this is Michael Benner. Aloha.